Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Martin and his friends watching in the Caribbean, our friends in Western Australia, people on holidays, people who are incapacitated, can't make it to church, and those who just want to watch from home. <laughs> it's great to have you all. Merry Christmas to you all. Love you. Uh, oh, a joke, Christmas joke. At three in the morning, I was going scrolling through my phone looking for a decent Christmas joke. I'd read about 400, still looking for one, so I wrote my own. But let me just give you one first. Um, this is for cranky dads. Uh, why is Christmas like an office job? Because you do all the work and a fat guy in a suit gets all the credit. For the Honda drivers, knock, knock. Honda. On the first day of Christmas. But here's what the one I made up. Okay, you ready? A Macquarie, oh, sorry, Macquarie Life Church Christmas joke. Some parents from Macquarie Life Church had a baby boy born at Christmas. Why did they call him Wayne? Because their favourite Christmas song was A Wayne in a Manger. That was better than the, than the Google ones, eh? I thought someone's got to come up with a decent joke. Now, just let me change that. So today is a Christmas message, but it's called The Great Escape because we're looking at the escape of the precious family into Egypt. But it's a bit risky intro. Ros wasn't real keen on it, but I'm going to go there anyway. Remember I mentioned last week that they did a survey in America, you know, of so many shootings and killings, and what was the most common factor in each murderer? And it was that they were strong conspiracy theorists. So I wasn't trying to put anyone down. But there was an Australian shooting this week, and we don't know all the info yet, but it seems that the mastermind of that was a strong conspiracy theorist. So he'd gone from conspiracy theory into strong fear, which became paranoia. And when he knew the police were coming to find his brother, to make sure his brother was okay, fear had dominated him into thinking, they're coming to shoot us, we'll need to shoot them first. So... I'm not paying out on conspiracy theory, but I'd just be careful of what fear can do to you if, if you let it take hold. And I uh, heard a psychologist just speaking on a little bit, some, just some interesting insights because it leads into this great escape thing. Um, uh, conspiracy theory can strengthen our tribal unity because we start fighting a common enemy, but there's a huge danger with it is when we go into too much fear. She said, when people feel a loss of control of their own lives, they are much more vulnerable to believing erroneous conspiracy theories. Um, or sometimes, with just normal people, it can make them make wrong assumptions and have suspicions about people that they really should be trusting. It, it, sometimes it gives to them a false illusion of regaining control of their lives. So, so that was interesting. And what's interesting how that leads into, and I'll, I'll read to you from Scripture in a minute, but the flight into Egypt was an interesting one. It validates self-preservation, by the way, because Jesus' life was in danger and he flees. So sometimes you've got to do things that are self-preservation, but in his life, a number of times his life was under threat. Remember, and he'd disappear through the crowd or he'd escape. Or he'd... But then came the day 
where he stood before the authority and willingly let go because of God's will and faced death. It's just interesting, and it made me wonder about what have been our great escapes. What's a great escape in your life? Because people sometimes have to escape wrong friends or abusive partners or abusive parents or even abusive kids, which is a more common thing as well now, or just mistreatment in general or temptation. We just need, it gets too strong and we need to, to make an escape. What have you escaped from? I remember my great escape, one of them, <laughs> was I went to Burma with a guy named Michael Murphy who was on the national executive at the time and he asked me to go because he was teaching me a lot about church planting and we went to Burma and this interesting thing happened. Before we went, I knew we were going to meet with a lot of very, very poor pastors and I'd heard the story of them in bare feet crossing the snow and the mountains to be able to get on foot over 100 k's to the pastors conference so they could get there and receive and I shared it with the church here and I, I just made this statement because I didn't think anyone would give much I said if anyone would like to give anything um, you know to help them just slip it into my pocket at the end of the service and at the end of the service hundreds of people were stuffing money in my coat pockets and, and in my side pockets and it was just sort of overflowing and dropping on the ground so I gathered it and we took it with us into Burma Michael also had $20,000 to take him to help the pastor there he had, had a really good church and he used to help create hospitals that would help the people so the government you know, in a dictatorship or a military-run country turned a blind eye to what he did and the success he had as a church because of what he was doing for the people. Anyway, um, we smuggled 20000 in that he had and then we had all the money from our church, but we had to go to the bank and convert it into the local currency. <laughs> it was like, you know, and we were like stuffing stuff in our socks and in our pockets and in our bags. We had so much money. Anyway, we took it in, but the pastor didn't want to give it to the pastors because he said it makes them too weak. They just live by faith. That's it, even faith for their food. And if I let you give them all this, you're just going to make them weak and it's not going to help them that much in the type of life they've got to live. So anyway, I said, look, I come under you and we won't give anything if you don't want to, but can I just tell you the story of what happened after church? And I told him the story of you people coming out and so he allowed us to give those pastors money. Some of them got to catch the train home. Some of them got to buy shoes, you know, to walk through the snow. And it was, it was moving. But we were doing this and word got out. And we were supposed to be there two weeks. And we'd been there a week and a half. And the pastor rang us early one morning in our motel room about 5 a.m. and interrupted us and said, get out now. The authorities are coming to arrest you. Just go straight to the airport. I've booked you on such and such a flight. It'll get you out of the country. And when you get to, I can't remember what the next country was doing. So we're flying to the airport thinking, I hope we don't get arrested and put in jail at the airport. Because I'm picturing Burmese prison. You know, you hear the stories, eh? It's years before you get out. Anyway, we got on the plane and we made a safe exit and it's never felt so good to take off. <laughs> you know, it's just like, ha, ha, ha. But it was a great escape. And so it was. Let me, let me read to you the story. It just, this sums up the message. Jesus had his own escapes on the earth, but he came so that we could escape hell and gain heaven. And so he eventually stopped escaping from all the plots to kill him and face death on a cross. So let me just read it to you. After the wise men were gone, this is uh, Matthew 2.13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph 
in a dream. It seemed to be the way Joseph heard from God. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious. Now, I find this next section theologically challenging. It's hard for me, even me, to get my head around. When he realised that the wise men had outwitted him, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Um, it just interests me. It occurred to me during the week, and I have had this thought years ago, but it came back to me. I think... Any sin in our lives, or you know, if you pick the area that you're weakest in and you just cast off all restraint and kept sinning down the line in that area, I think nearly all sin eventually leads to murder if you just completely give in to it. Um, it might just give you, give you something to think about. And this exposes not so much anything about God, but, but the potential of man to sin is stunning. Even you and I, under the wrong circumstances, our weakness could be exposed and we could become a murderer. And if you don't think you could or if you don't think you could have a moral fault, I think you're on dangerous ground. You need to know that you have certain weaknesses and so you need to walk closely with God and it keeps you away from where those weaknesses want to lead you. Okay, let's read on. Nearly finished. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But this is like something's supposed to happen and it doesn't. The facts are contradicting what God's saying, but only for a short time. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Ark, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. So that was his own reasoning. And then quickly to back that up, then after being warned in a dream, that's the third time in a short space, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophet has said, he will be called Nazareth. Because I know they're saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Who's been to Nazareth? I haven't been there. But apparently... It's not even big enough to be a village. It's sort of a location with just a few things. It's like nothing <laughs> kind of good does come out of Nazareth in a way. And it was like an obscure identity uh, for a season. So let's just look at that a little bit. Um, <laughs> I just felt this. This, was, this is weird thoughts, all right? But I'm thinking from the perspective of the fisherman's dad. They meet Jesus, right? Well, they're out of there. They dropped the nets. They didn't raise up successes. They didn't make sure Dad's business was okay. So I just was thinking that. I said this, Jesus probably wasn't the kind of guy your parents would want you to hang around with. Drop your nets. Follow me. He didn't visit his cousin in prison. Trouble followed him everywhere he went. And when Lazarus became his friend, he got raised from the dead, but it says then everyone wanted to kill Lazarus as well. Martyrdom awaited most of the disciples. So how would your parents feel 
if you were following Jesus in that day instead of this day? Maybe not real keen. <laughs> when we got called to Newcastle, we were both school teachers, and I didn't start school teaching until I was 26, and my parents were like, at last he's got a decent job. Then, you know, we were on two $400 wages, and God called us to Newcastle, so we let $800 a week go, and we came to $125 a week, and Ros was pregnant, so she didn't bother getting a job. My parents were like, so... I was nine months pregnant, what do you want? <laughs> it wasn't a payout, sorry. But my parents were freaking out, like, it took you six years to get a decent job and you love it. Why would you let that go to go and take a church and to lose that wage and to go back into poverty? What, what are you doing? Like, and I get that. <laughs> it was sound reasoning, but it didn't make sense. The fact is that God provides and takes care of you or the truth is, <laughs> the fact just for a couple of years didn't kind of match the truth, hey. But we were in a test and, we're, and we were having our faith grown and we were passing things that were pushing our flesh out of the way and letting us walk after the Spirit and it eventually really paid off. Um, so a couple of points. First one, self-preservation is legitimised by this event. Um, Egypt was an unusual place of refuge for a Jew because their whole history was Egypt was bad. But God can make the worst places safe for you. God's kids, that holy family, were in a strange land. Hands up, any of you that were born overseas. Just, yeah. So in a way, I know it's home now, but there's that concept when you come here, it's a strange land. But God can take care of you. Let, just, let me give you one angle. You go to your parents... We're moving to Australia. There's crocodiles, sharks, the most poisonous snakes in the world, lots of venomous spiders. But this is where God wants us to live. Your parents are probably thinking, are you crazy? Why would you go there? But it's a good life in Australia, isn't it? Um, God can take and make you safe in the worst places. He can make them safe for you. Strange directions. Go to Egypt. Wow. For a Jew, that's, that's a weird direction. Um, mm, all right. Second point. And there's only two points. <laughs> the next one's a bit longer. The two kings at war with us. So in us, you know how the Bible talks about flesh versus spirit. It's a bit like in us, there's a Herod and a Christ. And they both want to be king. And that's why sometimes you, you have a battle within you and... It's who you choose to let win decides the type of life you have or which voice is like one in each ear and they're contrary. Which one do you let win? But, the, you know, the, the battles do rage sometimes for all of us. The gospel has an enemy because it's from God. Notice in the beginning of Jesus' journey, kids were slain, they were killed. In the middle of Jesus' journey, John the Baptist was beheaded. And in the end of Jesus' journey, he was the one that was slain. Hmm. Life's pathways are rarely smooth. Joseph aims for Bethlehem. That's where he wants to go and ends up at Nazareth, somewhere he would never have choose. But it fulfilled the scripture and it was part of God's plan and you could preach a whole message on how that ended up paying off. But He wasn't the first Joseph diverted from Canaan to Egypt. Remember Joseph, that was his brothers sold him into slavery. 
Some roads were blocked. They were not Joseph's preferred choices, but angels guided him to the right places and he was warned in dreams and listened to the warning and so was kept safe. Oh, people. Listen to the warnings. At first, the facts are contrary to the promise, but not in the end result. Just a side thought. You're, so we go, they kind of go into obscurity for a while as a family. Your obscurity season is sometimes your most important. This is an interesting one. Um, we had good family Christmases growing up, but then from seven, I've mentioned this once before, when I was 17 I had a job and I, uh, my family would go away every Christmas and I couldn't go with them because I couldn't get leave. So from 17 to 24 I had Christmas alone every year. And then I met Ros at Teachers College and I wasn't ready for a relationship so I didn't want to commit but God was trying to show me something out of my loneliness and out of my need. <laughs> you need this family, not just Ros. You need this family. And so they invited me in for Christmas. They were good at being inclusive at Christmas and at the Christmas table. My first Christmas there was a truck driver and a prostitute that Ros's mum had met in rehab, and they were lovely people. And I walk in with a big slab of beer over my shoulder. I didn't know they didn't have alcohol in their home or even in the fruitcake. <laughs> it was a big, you know, Henry boundary. No alcohol in the home. I walk in, oh, not saved yet, by the way. Who wants a beer? <laughs> There's dead silence. And the truck driver goes, I would. <laughs> Thank God. Roz takes me by the arm, drags me to the kitchen, goes, no alcohol. <laughs> anyway, we got through that. <laughs> but it was like the gift of need in my life was trying to show me something. It's, it's not always the voice. It is a lot for me, but sometimes you've got to have the humility to recognise the need in you and respond to how God is trying to fulfill the need. What's he doing? It mightn't fit your readiness. It mightn't fit your timing. It mightn't fit your desire, but you're wiser to go with it because through that, there's a big fulfillment going to happen. Um, it actually made me think, and it was so nice to have a Christmas atmosphere again. And I, It made me actually think about, I'll preach a message on this one day, atmospheres I loved. And I thought it was interesting... Because I led all my family to the Lord and my favourite atmosphere in my family of origin was after my parents got saved and we'd all left home and we'd go back and have Christmas there. There was this beautiful soft atmosphere that I loved. It was the atmosphere in Ross's home and I think when our kids were going up primary school age, I loved that atmosphere of Christmas in our home then. And we had a talk and I said, Ros, our atmosphere is not as good now. We need to do something about it. So our house now has become the centre for Christmas, and Ros's family comes up. We've got seven people staying overnight. We've got ten people coming on Christmas Day. And that's weird, because when I first entered the ministry, I was like, I was brought up Catholic, mate. We had to go to church on Christmas Day, and I hated it. It just ripped the family apart. It'd be at church all morning, miss half Christmas Day. It really annoyed me. So when I came here, I wouldn't let them have a Christmas Day service. Some people freaked out. 
but we had a nice Christmas. But then we were always travelling on Christmas Day with little kids and I had to draw the boundary and go, nah, we're going to have our own Christmas, at least the morning together, just with our family and then we can go off the rest of that. And we did that. But guess what? Now it's gone full circle. Now that got too lonely because the kids have got other families to be with, so it's like, now we're lonely. Well, let's do something about it. Let's become inclusive again and open up and, and bring in. And it feels really good. I've become a people person. <laughs> anyway, let me finish. <laughs> it's a miracle. Oh, God. <laughs> what about when we encounter the gospel? And I just want to show you these two pictures. They just intrigued me. This is my grandson, Jack, Beck and Matt's little boy. So look at the chook, chook one first. So he loves the chooks and he's taking it in. He doesn't know yet. Chooks provide eggs that are full of vitamins that keep you alive. And he doesn't know yet that you can eat chook and it tastes good. So he's encountering some of life stuff and it's, he's kind of wondering and figuring it out. But there he is. I don't know if it's his mum or dad either singing or preaching, but he's, it's like a gospel encounter, one of his early encounters. And he's in wonder considering not figuring much out yet, but I just, I liked that contrast. One's considering life, one's something starting to happen in God. Is it seed going in about worship or singing or preaching or leading or just supporting? I don't know, but something's happening. And I thought, wow, gospel encounters. Mm. I wonder what your gospel encounter is this Christmas. God gives us the gift of need so that we know we need God. The sense of our own sinfulness should, should draw us to Christ, not away from him. Take the lack, the sin and the need and go to him and invite him in to help you with it. And I'll finish with this um, and then I'll hand over. We're like the three wise men in that we are given a preventative grace. Notice there was a protection on them from Herod. Don't go back that way, go this way. So we have that. Part of us is like Herod. We've sinned and we need saving. I could say part of you is like Mark there. You've sinned and you need saving. Same thing. But let's just pick someone really bad just to shock you a bit. Um, and then in Christ, we have the world's best barrister in heaven's court. Because <laughs> if you're guilty, you want someone sticking up for you in that legal place that they know you're guilty. And Jesus is the perfect barrister that you can't afford, but volunteers his skill and his sacrifice to intercede for you on your behalf. And you go, Jesus, can you forgive me? I want to be in you. Can you cover me? So he washes you clean, he clothes you, and then he presents you before God. And the Bible actually said this, that he won't even lose one of those he was given. Wow. And so that's how you stand before God. Not, I was really good this week, can you bless me? No, no. Here I am. I've been good in that this week, thank you. I've been weak in that, I need you. And he does that, he cleanses covers and he presents and the father goes come I'll accept you through Christ come 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 
Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this message. For more information, please visit macroylifechurch.com.au.